Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Stoll. Hey there. Luke Stutters. Hello. I'm Charles Max Wood from Top End Devs. Most recent addition on Top End Devs is Top End Devs slash Workshops. If you're looking for career stuff or other stuff, that's what we're doing. We have a special guest this week, and that is Jeremy Smith. Jeremy, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you Sorry. are and why you're famous. Uh, yeah, definitely not famous. I'm a designer developer. I've been working in, in the Rails community for quite a number of years, since about 2009, I think. And I run Hybrid, a tiny one-person studio where I typically work in fractional roles uh, with usually three or four clients at a time. Cool. Very cool. I am a non-designer developer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, if you impress anyone, let's just put it out there right now. How do they go to hire you for a fractional role? Well, right now I've got hybrid.co, H-Y-B-R-D.co. That's my site. All right, cool. Well, you wrote an article about auditing gems in Rails. Yeah. And I hate them all. <laughs> but I'm a little curious. You said that there was a bit of a story here as far as how this got written. Yeah. So I had actually wanted to get back into blogging, technical blogging. I'd taken several years off and just wanted to get back in this fall. And uh, I had been working with a client who needed an audit logging uh, solution. And you know, typically when I'm starting a new project for a client, if there's some underlying dependency that I need, I'm going to go do a big investigation first and look at a lot of libraries available and solutions that are out there. I'm definitely not an invented myself first uh, kind of person. I'm going to look to see what what's already been done, see uh, you know prior art in a lot of ways. And so I started just by going back and looking at all of the available audit logging gems, at least all the big ones. Came up with a list and uh, started comparing them kind of did a deep dive into the gems themselves, looking at the various implementations, looking at, you know, usage, how, how up to date they are, uh, their sort of philosophical approach. And then eventually, once I'd done that, I realized I was going to roll my own for this client. But Ouch. along the way, I collected all these notes. <laughs> and uh, I realized, you know, I had enough here to, to make a blog post out of. And uh, turns out people liked it. So yeah, good deal. I'm I'm curious what the rest of you all have done for auditing and audit logs on apps, or am I the only one that suffered through this? I've typically reached for a gem. I want to say audited previously mm -hmm. and paper trail currently. Mm -hmm. Those are the two that I've suffered through. I mean, used. Uh, <laughs> how about you, Luke? 
I've done it on PHP for HIPAA processing in, in a pharmacy in the States. That was pretty fun. But uh, yeah, it's, it's largely the kind of thing you hit if you work in a regulated industry. I've never seen it in e-commerce or anything like that. And generally in a regulated industry, you know, usually someone's handing you and they're like, here's what you're going to be using, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you said not used in e-commerce. My current client is e-commerce. I'm not going to go into more than that, but they they're using an auditing gem for their stuff. But yeah, my my experience is mostly that people think they need an auditing gem or they have some regulatory reason for needing an audit, auditing gem. And the reason they think they need it is because they don't trust the people using their system or their customers don't trust the people that they've assigned to use the system and they want to be able to see what they're doing with it. And then nobody ever goes and looks at the audit logs. Yeah. I typically work with small clients and I find that the when when they want something like an audit log, it's usually because their customers are wondering why things have changed. You know, multiple mm-hmm. customers have the ability to change settings or configurations uh, around their accounts and it cuts down on support to be able to say, well, here, here's the log, you know, you need to talk, talk amongst yourselves to figure out, you know, why so-and-so changed, changed the setting. So it, it removes some of that, I think, for, uh, for customers. That's usually the use case I've, I've had it. I can almost see my way to that. The, the issue that I have with that argument again, though, is that you're going to ha- only have a handful of people that ever actually use it for that. And everybody else is not even going to know it's there because they don't care. And yeah. so, but at the same time, I mean, I can see my way to, we need this because, you know, one of our larger customers, right, has that particular issue. So, yeah. So I'm curious as we dive into this, what did you or didn't you like about these auditing gems? I think they do a lot. Uh, most of them do a lot. Uh, and that was one of the things that's always concerning to me when I'm bringing in a new dependency, particularly for clients that are really care about maintaining a, a smaller set of dependencies. I want to be cautious about how much I'm bringing into a code base mm-hmm. um, with with a gem. What's its kind of its uh, surface area in regard to security and risks and ways that it might interplay with other other parts of the an app. And if I don't need that much of it then I might be leaning toward building my own solution. And for most of these, as gems grow, they tend to just, uh, especially popular ones, they accumulate more more functionality mm-hmm. over time. It's just kind of natural, I think. But and, come on, uh, come on, Jeremy. There's no way, there's no way a gem for logging would lead to a major security vulnerability. How crazy <laughs> would that be if your logging right, exactly. <laughs> introduced massive security vulnerabilities, right? That that would never right, happen. Right. No, no. All I heard was the paper trails of fat, fat, fatty. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm. I, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to fat shame there. Uh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, but I I think a lot of these gems do have their place. But I want to I want to make sure I really know that I'm going to get it's the value out of it before I add something like this to a to an app. So that was kind of the first step. Just going through and, and seeing what the surface area is for a lot of these. And on on top of just being able to log uh, what happened, like the changes that are happening, uh, some, of these, some of these gems go beyond that to things like uh, being able to do uh, version numbering, mm-hmm. uh, diffing, reversion. And if you don't need those things, you're, you're, you're bringing that along into your app uh, unnecessarily. And in my case, I didn't need those. So I didn't need to necessarily reach for a gem right away. 
That makes sense. Yeah, they they definitely do a lot of bookkeeping is has been my experience. And so you wind up storing all kinds of stuff in the database. And when when I actually do need the audit log, yeah, it's like one or two things that I'm actually ever looking at. And so I, I can kind of see my yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from here, right? It does way more than I need it to. And I'm adding all of this uh oh overhead to my code that I don't need. Right. Yeah. I think a, a common thing that comes up with auditing is like reconciliation, right? Like if you if you're trying to introduce something just to keep track of changes and you don't already have a plan to reconcile those audits and kind of go back through and see mm. if you're not really tracking them in any way. It's almost like, <laughs> why why do you have any logs? <laughs> if you have, like we turn Rails logs on because they, they provide value because we go back and we look at them on occasion, right? We mm. look for signals in them. If you're, I feel like a lot of times people just like, oh, I just need auditing on. <laughs> and then uh, retrospectively, they're like, well, okay, now I want to do something with it. Yeah. yeah. And I think a, a, a lot of like kind of maybe drawbacks of rolling your own in this case would be like, okay, somebody hasn't, you've rolled your own and now the customer is like, hey, how do I view these? How do I get reporting on them? And then you have to go and add all that stuff back in. So I can see. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I I could see definitely both sides. It's it's kind of mm-hmm. nice though. Like gems in general are kind of like this drop in feature set, right? Where you mm-hmm. don't really know everything that's in them, right? But you know that they provide value for about at least seventy five percent of what's in the gem. And so you're like, okay, I'll install this gem, and it's going to be great, and I'll do the, what I'm hoping that it does. And then, like you were saying, you know, all of a sudden <laughs> comes with all these extra things that you now. You know, when you go to upgrade, uh, if something doesn't work in that portion of it, well, you're like not even using it. And now you have to resolve the upgrade to settle some feature that's not used. I know I've, that's yeah. happened to me before. Yeah, you take on uh, you take on all that responsibility. And I think at least in my, you know, at the point I am now, I want to remove responsibilities where, you know, where I don't need to carry them. But I think to, to your point, Valentino, about you know, sort of the next step beyond the logging to the other needs that that your user, your your business owner might have, your product owner. I think part of that is kind of seeing how core audit logging is to the application. And I think maybe, like in in the case for for this client that I had, I knew that this was never be like a really core feature that he needed. It wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't because he was in a kind of industry where he needed it. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, compliance or something like that. Uh, it was really to address the the issue of of uh, end users under a single account being able to know who made those changes. But it was it was really just that. And so I knew I we weren't going to go beyond that into need to like diff versions, uh, keep track of version numbers, and allow them to do reverting changes and things like that. And so if if you are in an, working with an app, I think where you could imagine that as a future scenario, as a likely scenario, then I think going one of the standard routes, you know, like paper trail does make a lot of, a lot more sense. Um, so I think part of it is addressing the immediate business need, but also thinking like, where's, where are we headed with this app? Where are we going? What kind of features are likely to come from here? What are we adjacent to that I need to get, a, get ahead of at least a little bit? And I think that that should inform the choice. So I, I did notice you point out in here, kind of one of the drawbacks of, of many of these gems and kind of approaches 
is when you need to keep track of what the current user is or who the current entity yeah. is, right? And a lot of cases, they use thread local variables, which are, is not the greatest tool in the toolbox. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And can definitely cause some issues. What's what's wrong with a thread local variable? Shouldn't we? You don't use a Puma server? Yeah, shouldn't we all be using more local variables to kind of reduce our our variable footprint? No. What's wrong with a thread local variable? For the newer folks, yeah. Why don't you actually explain? No, I'm being serious. What's wrong with a thread local? Yeah. Yeah, I think. Well, I may not be the best person to explain this, but my understanding is that they're really like acting like global variables that can leak outside of threads. Or outside of outside of a request uh, beyond, and uh, so that kind of leakage can lead to other problems, you know, with other requests. So if you're not using them carefully, you have the ability for that to impact other users, other data, making changes that you aren't expecting. So there, there are a number of good posts out there about the dangers of uh, global data, global global um, variables. Obdigram has a really great blog post on Ruby Tapas called Understanding Ruby Thread Local Variables. That's a really good good uh, explanation there. And one of the gems uses, uh, I think it's, I can't remember which one it is. One of them uses Steve Klabnik's request store, which is a wrapper around the uh, thread current that ensures mm-hmm. that that data is, is isolated by request, uses like a rack middleware. And others basically implement that, a solution to that within the gem itself. One of the big cases against thread local variables that I'd seen in the past was Ryan Biggs. He wrote this post year, a few years back called Rails Current Attributes Considered Harmful. And so that, that was always kind of file some of those things away and think, okay, yeah, that is kind of a concern. I don't totally know everything about this, but I'm going to be cautious. And then coming in when I started investigating this gem, these gems, realizing all of them have to do this. All of them have to access uh the current user this way because they can't get it within the within the request right they got to so this is um this is one of the really interesting consequences of the uh, of the orm full stop if you've got an orm you're used to having all this magic happen behind the scenes you know rails just taking care of it but here if you want to add something in which says you know fine this record's been modified this model's had a change but mm-hmm. in order to do proper logging, we've now got to go all the way over here and check the current state of a session to see who's who's logged in right now. Yeah. Right. And then the alternative right. to that is, is like, ooh, I know you'd have to basically pass in the current user everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's, uh, I'm not a fan of your own. If it, when it works, it really works. But when you start heading these edge cases, that's when you start running into more interesting behavior. Uh, I just want to be, I, I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with paper trail. You know what I mean? I mean, even though yeah, it, it is not great, there's nothing wrong with paper trail. It's just a, it just logs too much, right? Yeah, it certainly can. Yeah, I think, I think probably the tendency with a gem like that is to, install it and then turn it on for everything Mm -hmm. Um, so without necessarily going through and thinking about exactly what i need what exactly what i need to track uh which models what particular (coughs) cases it's just turn it on for everything with no real thought about the impact that that could have on the application you know performance considerations size of the database and and just usefulness long term there's so much of that that's like thinking about the long-term maintainability of an app when you bring on that new responsibility 
I think that's, yeah, just being able to turning all those things on at the beginning is probably not the right way to go, but that's the easy thing to do. So Jeremy, yeah, I agree. I, I'm kind of interested to know kind of what your process is for, for looking up these dependencies, right? So you had this client come on and they need, had a need, what, what they thought was for just generic audit logging. <laughs> so how do you go about finding these gems and what do you what do you look at to weigh whether or not they're valuable or not or or whether you're going to roll something up yourself yeah i i think for years i've used ruby Ruby toolbox Mm -hmm. the ruby toolbox is a great site i've used that a lot for just determining that activity popularity and as much as i don't love the idea of using those they, they end up being helpful when i think about wanting to be in the big boat with lots of people. So if the boat starts to sink, everyone's taking lifeboat somewhere else. I know where to go. I find that to be really useful because I always want to I want to make sure that my clients are in a situation where there's a clear path to the next thing if they need it, particularly with things that are riskier or untested, maybe. But that's one of the things I love about a community where I can see lots of people solving problems the same way. And when trends change, I can kind of track those larger trends and see where people go. So, you know, maybe one solution starts to decrease in popularity and people start to move to another. A lot of times there are great blog posts that help in the migration process. Paperclip to active storage is a great example of that, I think, in recent years. Yeah. So outside of Ruby Toolbox, I think, you know, I'll start by taking the most popular and active gems, and that'll be a big indicator of if a, a gem is being maintained, I want to make sure that it's up to date with the latest version of Rails. And from there, I think it's it's going to be particular to whatever kind of library, you know, it is, like what it's trying to solve. But I want to get a sense of its scope. How broad is the feature set within it? What kind of surface area does it have? And then are there any particular differences in terms of its implementation or philosophy that to kind of see how that matches against what my client's need is. I think that's a big thing. Finding finding a gem or a library that aligns with the particular need that your the business has or the product has. And then just trying to find the best alignment there across those things. Yeah, I'm kind of curious as we dive into this question a little bit more. I mean, so far it makes makes sense and it's kind of what I do too, right? I'll go look on Ruby Toolbox or something like it see what's popular. Yeah, go look at whether or not it's currently maintained, get a feel for kind of how they approach things. But from there, what do you I mean, because it looks like you kind of dove into these gems a bit and got an idea of how they function and the level of functionality that's there, maybe some of their dependencies. I mean, what all do you look at when you're evaluating gems from that perspective? You know, once you've kind of narrowed it down, okay, I'm gonna look at these three or four. I guess, you know, like a lot of times there there is only one, maybe two gems that are really popular. Mm-hmm. And I'm typically going sti- to stick with with that, you know, whatever is being well-maintained and is most popular. In this case, there were several options, I think. And that gave me pause in a, in a way that maybe other, other libraries wouldn't have. So I don't know. I think it was easier to, to rule out for this particular client. It was easier to rule out, for example... Logitze, the gem that done was, by... That um, was a really wild one. That was like the standout technique. It, I, I love it. Like, I, I love everything uh, Evil Martians does. Like, they do such cool stuff. But it also kind of scared me because, like, I'm thinking I want to be, like, an absolute Postgres expert to use this solution. And that was... So I imagine that was, like, a that was a case where I was thinking, okay, if I leave this project, do... Are there enough... Is there enough in-house... Postgres understanding to 
handle, you know, to carry this forward into the future. I can imagine that they have they have it in spades, you know, evil Martians. I, yeah, so I really like what they do. But for me, it was kind of easier to rule out something like that. Public activity was was another one. I think that's an older gem that some people have used as like a, like activity logs, you know, in a like a almost like a, a social app, an app that has some kind of social aspect to it. You can use it for audit logging, but it's that's like it's philosophically a little bit off from that. I felt like it has some more flexibility to it because you could you could um, think about using tracking changes beyond just one active record model. And so I, there there were some advantages there I saw, but overall I felt like the, it was philosophically off from what I what I needed. I think if I you know I, if it really came down to it for this one client, it was going to be paper trail audited. And between the two, I was going to go with probably the most popular being Paper Trail. Although I like I like Collective Idea and the the work they put out, so I felt good about that one too. But ultimately, I think in this case for me, it was just realizing that i I didn't need this I didn't need a solution this large. I didn't for for any of them really, and that like I could really after having understood the architecture of all these gems, I could build what I needed, kind of taking taking the best parts of what I saw from those things, but also avoiding the extra baggage that comes along with it and then building a solution that just was tailored to to this particular to this particular need. So this kind of leads to another debate that I have with people a lot and that's build it or buy it kind of thing, right? Mm, I mean in yeah. this case it was free. Paper tra- trail is free to use, you know, or audit it or whatever. So my question is is, you know, and you're doing this for a client. So instead of them paying you for a half hour to get paper trail or audited put in they're paying you for the however many hours it's going to take you to work on this thing, unless you're billing by the project instead, which I guess I didn't ask. But no, I'm not. Um, you're right. Yeah, it's valid. I think if you're just taking the current the the current feature that needs to be built and only only scoping the cost to the current feature, then you're right. Implementing one of these gems is the fastest thing to do. It's always going to be the fastest thing to do. But I I think you know I've been maintaining long-term Rails apps for over a decade and dependency maintenance over a decade really adds up. Mm-hmm. It really does, especially if you're trying to stay on top of it over time. And with a lot of these gems, there are schema changes that come along uh, with several of them uh, over the years. And if you're trying to make sure that you're up with every patch release, you know, sure, it only takes 10, 15 minutes every time to do a quick once over uh, with the, the change log. But if you do that 15, 20, 100 times, you know, in a decade, that's a lot. So I think it adds up and eventually I would, that costs. I would never, yeah. I would never bump a dependency to a client without running that thing up first. Never, ever. Am I right? Come on. You'd say, oh, you get the old depender bot going and you go, oh, yeah. it's just, oh, no, wait. Oh no! Wait, I will. You always run it up. Come on, don't you? Do, do you always run it up? I always run it up. I I don't always run something locally. I will check the change log, and so I'm always checking the change log for everything that's coming through. If it looks looks like it's a you know it's a patch release with low low impact, I might at least get it to staging and just do a smoke test on staging. But it also depends on the gem. Like if it's something like uh, change the stripe. And it looks like even somewhat significant. I might try to run run some transactions and make sure that's working fine. Whatever you know, whatever is highest risk or critical in your app, I think those gems are the ones that bear the most scrutiny when you are doing dependency updates. 
but yeah, for, for patch level stuff, sometimes I'll just push it and go after I've reviewed the change log. But that still takes it still takes time. It still takes time to do all of that over and over and over again. And uh, so if you can avoid that and the uh, the you know the surface area of your own solution is much smaller, then there's there's just a lot less to be responsible for, or there can be. I think too, when you're looking at gems is be cautious. Gems are tucked away, right? And you don't really have ownership of them. Yeah. They they may be open source, but you're not really in control of the release cycle. Mm-hmm. So even if you were to find a bug and make your own patch, you, you kind of have to like deploy your own version of the gem and use that to fix whatever that you need. Whereas if yeah. you have your own solution, if if something is an issue in in the upgrade process or in any process, you could it's it's there. You see it and you can fix it on the spot. And that's often a thing, you know, even I'm guilty of, <laughs> you know, you go and you install the gem and you think, oh, this is great. And you upgrade it. And then whoops, like, why is that test breaking? Or some, right. some test wasn't written even. And you, you missed that part of the QA process. And now in production, people are ha- having issues with it. <laughs> oh, and man. then you I've, ha- people are, I've you, got exact, you know, yeah. you struggle. I've got, it scramble. I've got it with uh, I've got it with with Ruby because I started doing Ruby three point one for real this week, Valentino, and oh mm. my god, ah, oh, ah, oh, the pain, the pain of Ruby three point one. If you if you have you been working with Ruby <laughs> keyword <you> been, arguments? <laughs> oh my god, oh, and I was this. What is headache arguments? <laughs> oh, it was kicking my ass. And I couldn't, I just couldn't, you know, when you start writing like little two line programs to make sure you're sane, you know, you get to that stage where you go, no, it can't, it can't possibly be calling that because this has one argument and that has zero, but it's how could, what could, anyway, it was what it was, was it was just a kind of weird Sinatra thing with like Ruby free where when you call if you instantiate a class and you call initialize within like a sinatra app include whatever it is right that hijacks what you're doing so it's not coming through to the initialize method and all you have to do is pull down sinatra from like github and just like copy paste the github url into your bundle right and then then all your problems are solved all of your problems are solved but, uh, sorry, sorry. It's, 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 by five minutes of pain ceases now. Ruby 3.1 <laughs> is absolutely doing my head in this week, and I've never felt more stupid. I don't know. I think I just way overused keyword arguments in all, in some <laughs> in some projects, <laughs> and and kind of mashed together hash arguments. I definitely was probably doing it wrong <laughs> in retrospect, and now I'm paying for it. Right <laughs> outside yeah. of that, I I've had. I've had no issues with Ruby, Ruby 3.1. I, I haven't done anything with Ruby 3 yet in a major way. Most of the projects that I wind up working on, are, they, they can still run, and in some some cases, probably ought to still run on Ruby 2. But I just went through a Rails upgrade from 4 to 6. And yeah, I had all kinds of warnings about doing keyword arguments different mm-hmm. instead of using a hash. So that that's that was all kinds of fun to go track all those down. I enjoy doing Rails upgrades. Uh, there's something very satisfying about that. I've done quite a few over the past 10, 10 years, 10 plus years. Um, it was a pain, but it was it was satisfying. Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, the satisfaction you get with cleaning a really messy workshop, just like getting it back in order feels so good. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. 
Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So going back to this, I guess the last question that I have related to the auditing and rolling it on, on your own is, do you just build it into the app? Or do you kind of try and spin up your own GitHub repo with an auditing library that, you know, you could swap in and out? And yeah, how do you test it and things like that? I think I'm probably along the lines of thinking that like, this is the kind of thing that you want to build into an app and then extract if you're ever mm-hmm. going to extract. I, I definitely subscribe to that philosophy. And in this case, it just wasn't wasn't really necessary. The amount of code, you know, to under this roll your own solution. The amount of code here is just not that significant, at least for this part of it. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's just worth building right in, including all the test coverage. And if I ever got to the point where I realized, you know, I thought, okay, this is this is worth extracting into the into a gem, then at that point I think it'd be, you know, be worth after, and, and that that's a choice I think to to wait and see how it works in production. I want to see this like stress tested. I want to see something exercised in production because I think it's really easy to build something that you think is going to, you know, be great. And then it, t- you know, it touches the real world. And then, then you realize what you didn't know before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think do the simplest thing first often is the best thing, you know, just put something into production, see how it's used. Once you've gathered all the things, once you've learned all the things that you were wrong about, made a bunch of mistakes, then maybe you have a pattern that works that you can extract into a separate library. But until then, it's not worth it. I, I don't know that it's worth offering it, you know, to anybody else as a as a workable solution. And the independent maintenance of a, you know, a separate library, I, I don't think is worth it. it. Hasn't been worth it to me the times I've tried to do that in the past. It's usually worth just first pass, build this right into the app. If it's, you know, if, if it's so great later, sure, we can extract it. But starting that way, I think often doesn't doesn't make sense. Yeah, but it makes you feel good because you did some open source, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, yeah, you can definitely look better on your, your resume or your uh, your GitHub profile. That's that's definitely true. I guess. I mean, th- there probably is value to that if if that's what you're after. But you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, for me, it's I'm thinking about like how am I serving my client best, and that's that's probably not the best use of my time. Maybe if I wanted to spend nights and weekends uh, doing that kind of extraction, that makes sense. But uh, to solve a particular problem for them, I don't need to stop and go build a gem first that that we can bring bring into the in, into their app. Yeah, you should have just forked paper trail and stripped out all the stuff you didn't want. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, like it did really bother me that like. Okay, so active record callbacks and thread local mm-hmm. variables, like these two things that everybody says, you know, oop, you know, these are bad, don't do these. 
like, okay, all these gems, that's what they're doing. And I realized, you know what? I don't need to do it this way. I could be explicit with my logging and then send this over to Sidekick. And that oh, interesting. Really- so you're not you're not doing save callbacks. You're nope. No, I just do it right in the controller. Yeah, I've got like one method for for logging the the model, and, and then it goes over to Sidekick. I was just curious on that. So if you're doing it through Sidekick, it's not even within the same transaction, right? Because that's the other thing that I see a lot of these gems do is it won't allow the actual save if it can't audit it. So yeah, which I mean that could be that could be beneficial. Like certainly, yeah. If you need that, it. yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you need, in my case, I knew I knew I didn't need that. Okay. Um, it was fine to the the purpose of the auto logging here was you know much much narrower, I think, and so I I could just push that to the background, take no performance penalty on that, and uh, and and just keep things simple that way. What I really like is two things I really like about the end of the article where you go into how you did your approach, and the first. Thing is that it's really clean uh, because you are explicitly logging saying here's where we're going to log yeah that takes more time for you as a developer because you're no longer relying on an automatic hook that comes off the dot save but yeah. when your client is going to go and have a look at those logs they're going to be way more readable so you'll, you'll, you'll be saving enormous amounts of time if anyone is actually looking through those logs and the second thing is I like I like the async because it means that the performance overhead of a system is going to be much, much smaller than any kind mm-hmm. of transaction bundling or additional queries. Luke, you're kind of hard to hear. Because I'm from Britain. Is, is that, we all talk like this around here. <laughs> no, I said hard to hear, not hard to understand. It's uh, it's my experimental microphone setup. Normal uh-huh. microphone service will be resumed soon. <laughs> I wanted to bring up just one thing I did notice from the the sidekick job you have here uh, mm-hmm. is your use of global ID. Yeah. Do you want to speak more about what that is? I've I've used that before and I really like it, but uh, I really yeah, I thought I, it was pretty clever how you uh, you were using it here. Thanks. Yeah, I I love using the global ID. I'm trying to think of other places that I've used this. I know that I've I've used this quite a bit. Yeah, I guess whenever you want to like be able to pass like a model, an instance of a model, and you don't know what the model is going to be. I love using global ID to do that. I, I think I've used that for in request parameters before, but here, here it makes a lot of sense as a as a way to pass, you know, as an argument to Sidekick. To how I did it, yeah, I think it's it's a it's an underused feature in Rails for sure. What is a global ID? I don't even know what a global ID is. Uh, I, was I know I don't either. So, so if you're not familiar, what's happening in kind of how he set up the audit is there is an audit auditable attribute that you can basically say what is getting audited. So you would have a model that's a blog post or page or something like that, and mm-hmm. you just call to global ID, and it it makes a special ID that keeps track of what the model, the class name is, and the actual ID, and it kind of like breaks that down into a, a serialized format. Right. And then you can start passing that around. And it, when you get to somewhere else that you want to extract that data, you can parse it using the library and ex- get the model name and the model ID and, and all those metadata that come with it. Yeah, I found it to be re- really useful. I should remember other places I've used this, but yeah, it's it's great. I love using this thing. I think we've used it before to send like send to like Shopify as a special metadata, you know, like, you made a purchase based on an active record model. 
there's so many ways you can use it. Wow, it really is a kind of URI for your for your <laughs> uh, modern instance. Yeah, that's that's a good way to say it. Yeah, it's getting dangerously educational now, isn't it? <laughs> right. So. Is this feature basically done at this point, or do you have other things that you're finding you're needing to add to it afterward? Because I've I've run into problems, you know, where I'm like, oh yeah, that's just like two days worth of work, and then you get in and it's like, oh, except for all the other stuff I didn't know until I started this. It yeah, it's after releasing this initial version, I haven't needed more changes at this point. There are some things that I'm anticipating possibly need to do. For example, like right now, you know, this does not, this solution does not pass in the change set, uh, doesn't record the change set. My my next thought would be to include uh, the request params, either the request params, passing those in and audit, you know, tra- logging that or using uh, the save changes, like the, the dirty attributes on uh, active record mm-hmm. and take the save changes and just store that store that as the change set and that might just the choice between the two just might depend on might depend on what you think the truth is about that log is is the truth like what the user entered or is the truth what actually got saved in the you know in the model instance mm-hmm. i am a cool. little bit concerned about like uh with sidekick like that kind of solution like passing a change set like a hash as a parameter but from what i'm looking at you know the best practices are you're supposed to keep your parameters as small as possible but it, it sounds like technically it's feasible to do that to, to send large large hashes um to sidekick so it, I, I don't it think could, it'll uh, actually a kind of funny story i don't know if you want to call it funny but (laughs) i came into a reason why you should keep those uh kind of parameters that you pass the jobs really small yeah uh, in that if you queue up say like 100 million sidekick jobs (laughs) as as you do and yeah sure as you know as can happen and all of those if you have like a payload in each one of those right. <laughs> that's a hash or json string or something like that that memory can blow out really fast in redis <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah that's definitely something to how, considering how much memory did that use up valentino <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me for the record but uh, <laughs> no i i think we i don't even remember uh it was uh we have pretty big instances and yeah it got eaten it was over a hundred million I think jobs oh wow yeah is that like asking for a friend it was somebody I know did that <laughs> all right good deal well any any other directions we want to take this before we do picks I've got some questions because you're running quite an interesting interesting outfit uh Jeremy. And I noticed you've been active on the Twitter, which is what I was going with earlier. Was about the Dependabot tip on your. Oh, Twitter, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Gotcha. I, was, I was, it was kind of heading towards it, but I never, never managed. All to right, it. yeah. Because uh, I just get non-stop Dependabot in the moment, so I'm like, oh, that's gone. Yeah. In. That's already in. I've stolen <laughs> free nice. show. But the other thing I would ask about was the time tracker. The time tracking mm-hmm. system you use for keeping track yeah. of what you're doing. I thought that would be something a lot of people would be interested in because I'd never seen this thing that you used before. Harvest? Right. Oh, yeah. I, I love Harvest. I've been using them, I think, since 2013. That's when I first left full-time employment and started working for myself. And I started trying to like track time like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an idiot just in a spreadsheet. 
which was just horrible. <laughs> it was like horrible. So it took me several months to like, I, I'm a cheapskate too. It took me several months. I finally switched to Harvest. And then maybe a year or two later, I started doing the paid plan. It was so worth it. So worth doing a paid plan. I'm pretty sure they're a Rails app too, by the way. I think they are. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. They used to sponsor the Freelancer Show. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're great. I haven't tried a lot of other time trackers, but once you get really good at one, I feel like it's, for me, it's just worth sticking with it. And the uh, the desktop apps, super helpful. One of the one of the hardest things about learning to do time tracking well is like figuring out what what exactly you need to track. Which you know, when I first started, I tried to tr- track everything, both billable and unbillable hours, even all my personal time, and that was like so. It was awful. I would not recommend doing that. Now I. I track anything that's related just to my business. So that would be all my billable time, but also any time that I'm working on my business, you know, doing tax, you know, I'm doing tax stuff this morning. Uh, if I'm having a sales call, anything like that gets tracked. And the other thing that's one of the other things that's really hard to, to, to figure out is just to remember, just remember to turn on your time tracker. Uh, mm-hmm. It's so frustrating. Uh, to come back, you realize you're deep in on something and, and you, you don't remember, you realize your time tracker's off and you don't remember like how long you've been working on this. So like having to go back and, and uh, try to re, re- remember where it was, like how many commits ago was that when I started this again? Or like, oh, I sent that email right before I started my time. So let me go look at the timestamp on that. So starting time is really important. Harvest helps with the like, you like walk away from your computer and then you get sidetracked for an hour and then come back and your time's still on. It'll tell you, hey, you've been like you've been uh, away for an hour. Do you want to remove that from your time? That's super helpful. So using the Harvest desktop app is great for that. I'm, um, I'm not asking because I want to start tracking all my colleagues' individual key presses. <laughs> I'm more interested in it from a personal productivity point of view. Has it has it made you more like productive or is it largely a kind of admin billing thing? I don't know that it made me more productive. I know that the first several years that I used it, it made me more stressed out. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really did. And co- like caused conflict with my wife, really, because it's like, well, how how is it possible that you only build this much? And I'm thinking, I don't know. I was sitting there all day. I don't know why that is, but it's really... I, I think the biggest thing I've learned is that full-time employment and working for yourself, you know, like billing hourly, they're totally different things. You walk into a, you know, into an office, you know, for your nine to five, there are a lot of times you're not actually, or I should say, you know, when I was doing that, there were a lot of times I was not working on some particular project. I might, you might be checking your personal email or taking a call, all those little things like when you've got multiple clients, you know, you're working for as a consultant, you can't like charge them all for those things. So I'm having to stop and start my time all day. And, you know, in a, in an eight hour day, you're lucky to bill six. That's rule mm-hmm. of thumb. That's what I've found. But for many years, I didn't understand that. But that's, that's just like how it goes. That's just how your day goes. And I kind of just don't believe anybody that thinks they can build better than that. Like if they're really being really careful with their time, I'm just a little skeptical of that. So coming, I think that's just part of the reality of it. It has made me really conscious of time and maybe not all in good ways. <laughs> Sometimes it's uh, not being able to be patient about things that you don't want to do because you're thinking about like the money that you're wasting, you know, like 
by having this conversation that's not necessary or something, you know, whatever it is. And that's not a great way to be thinking. But I think it takes a while to to kind of come to terms with how time slips by and how it's being used, how well you are at, at managing your time. But I've come back around to like feeling comfortable with it, you know, knowing what what I'm capable of, what my pace is, and also being able to look at like comparatively now that I have history of of that year over year, I can see like what a good year looks like for me, what a bad year looks like. Uh, 2020, I burned mm-hmm. out pretty bad by the end of the year, and I could look back and see like, oh, it was because I worked hundreds of extra hours. You know, I build hundreds of hours more that year uh, over some of you know other years, and that was just really clear. Okay, I see why that happened, and now I know what a pace is that's you know that I can kind of maintain long term. What's sustainable for me, and I think that's important to be able to know. Uh, so I find that really useful. Uh, that was very interesting. Thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. Sure. Yeah, I'm going to throw a couple things out. If you because I've used Harvest, I, I it integrates your billing and everything else, which is yeah. so. If you're freelancing, it's it's definitely a a, a good way to go. If you want to just Luke kind of mentioned, you know, more for like tracking how am I spending my time, am I being efficient, things like that. There's a free one out there called Toggle T O G G L and. Uh, what I would do is I would do what Jeremy said is not what you should do for a day or two, right? Where you're tracking everything. I played a game on my phone. I and, and not not necessarily to that level, but just to the point where it's like, you know, I was this is me goofing off. This is me working. This was me, you know, whatever. But then after a day or two, you really get an idea of where your time is going, right? Because yeah, you don't think about it when it's flying by. And Having gone from full-time employment to contracting again recently, yeah, I definitely can hear you on the other the other piece there where it's, yeah, I don't even, I, I didn't think about where my, you know, how I was spending my time when I was full-time employed because they just pay my salary and they were happy with what I got done. Yeah. But now that I'm billing hourly, it's like, oh, I got to make sure that I get my time in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm tracking that every week. Like, you know, I've every, almost every day I'm thinking like, have I hit my quota? Have I hit my quota? And I'm, you know, trying to make it by Friday to make sure mm-hmm. I've got enough hours logged that I'm that I'm okay. That's definitely a thing that as much as I like working for myself, that's a hard that's definitely one of the hardest aspects is feeling like you're always kind of under the gun. Always watching that. Always watching that. Yeah. And it gets different too if you're trying to build some other kind of business, right? Where you're not billing hours or billing projects, right? Where because I've worked both, right? I've also done it where I've said, hey this section of your project will cost you this much, right? And then however t- however long it took is however long it took. I actually like that kind of billing more because then I'm not under a ton of pressure to get the time in. I just have to get my work done. But that changes the dynamic too. Or if you're like for six years, I was full-time on the podcast, right? And so it's a different element there because yeah, I just have to get all the stuff done this week regardless of how long it takes. And Did so, you time track when you were doing that? No. No, okay. Yeah, I think that would be hard. But I, what what I do is every once in a while I'd get on toggle and I I do two two or three days of just hardcore recorded a podcast, did reached out to sponsors, uh, booked travel, whatever was involved, answered email, right? And so then after a few days, then I'd look at it and go, I spend a, an awful lot of time looking at my email, right? Yeah, that that was one of the ones that always came up for like two or three months after that too, like my phone usage would go way down, right? Mm. Because I, I didn't realize how often I was picking up my phone and doing stuff until I was tracking it, right? I'd hit it and I oh, played a game on my phone for 20 minutes, right? 
And I didn't realize I was doing that, you know, every hour or so. Yeah. You know, so just stuff like that. I found that very helpful. But just just keeping track of what you can control, right? So whether it's hours worked or tasks done or people reached out to or, you know, follow up email sent or whatever, tracking your work is is really, really helpful. Yeah. And if you're getting paid for the hours, then the hours is the thing that you're automatically tracking. Yeah, definitely. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. All right. Well, we're uh, kind of uh, getting toward the end of our time. I'm going to push us to picks. Valentino, do you want to start us off with picks? I'm not ready. Okay. Luke, you want to start us off with picks? I am ready. I got some picks for you this week. My first pick is Clean Agile by Robert C. Martin. Really, really interesting 20 years on retrospective of Agile, Scrum, and the associated development methodologies really enjoyed it works really well as an audio book if you're if you're an uncle bob fan then he likes to retread his usual anecdotes but really really great book and i've been re-examining some of my development practices and i found it really valuable my second pick which is quite a shameful pick is a more technical pick is effective testing with RSpec free. So I'm not a biggest fan of test-driven development, but after listening to Clean Agile, I went back and I revisited a whole load of Kent Beck interviews before and after he left Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Do you know what? Maybe, maybe it's not test-driven development that's bad. Maybe it's just that everyone I've ever worked with was bad at it. Right. So mm-hmm. or or I'm an asshole. One of it. One of one of those three possibilities. <laughs> right. Uh, or maybe it's a fad diet. Didn't DHH say that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So but I, I saw some really compelling stuff in in Bob Martin's book. Really interesting interviews. 20 years on interviews by uh, Ken Beck, effectively. And God, actually, for Kent Beck, it's more like that was like 95, right? So it's more like 26 years. Oh, oh, when he released his books on XP. When did XP come out? Is that 96? Mm -hmm. Is that later than that? Oh, man. It definitely predates the Agile Manifesto, but I don't remember. Yeah, let's let's not think about that. The uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm working my way through effective testing aspect free, the aspect free book, right? I'm doing the I'm not doing a mini test. I'm doing the aspect book, and don't do that with Ruby free. Don't do that exercise with Ruby free. Do it with Ruby two point seven. Just uninstall Ruby free from your machine if you're going through that book, and <laughs> install Ruby two point seven, and you're welcome. So those are my two picks. Awesome. I'm just gonna throw it out there. Pile on. I interviewed Bob right before he released Agile Clean Agile about Clean Agile. So I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well from the Clean Coders podcast. Oh, that's very cool. Valentino, what are your picks? All right. So I got two here. Both my coworkers wrote a couple of stellar articles. I just wanted to shout them out here. The first one is by Gina Perry. And uh, it's GitHub Code Spaces is great, but Mutagen is better. And basically, she talks about how we have made a kind of cloud development service, development environment 
uh, mm-hmm. for Duximity. It's really great. I use it every day, and now my computer doesn't sound like it's going to take off every time I try and fire up all of the Docker servers that we need to, to spin up all of our servers locally. So that no longer happens. It now happens in an in AWS instance. Thanks to all our great work. Uh, so you can read more about it there. The next one, another one of my coworkers, Edward Anderson, he uh, hooked up his lights to automatically sense when the camera turns on and off on his MacBook and then traps those logs and uses a shortcut to connect it with his HomeKit so that he can then, okay, anytime the camera turns on on his MacBook, it turns on the light behind so he gets nice illuminating light for all of his meetings. So he he, he wrote that up and I, I use the script and it, it works great. I have a uh, an on-air sign behind me. So now... Anytime, uh, anytime my camera light comes on, it turns on as well, and it turns off when the meeting closes. It's really great. But Valentino, how can we know you're telling the truth? You created <laughs> Here, Schrodinger's I'll, right right? I'll do it. I'm doing it live, guys. I'm turning my camera off. Oh, I can't. Yeah, I can't tell if it's on air lights on. <laughs> <laughs> it turned off. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to take your word for it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to check that out. That that looks really handy. I'm going to throw out a few picks. I usually do a board game pick every week. And I don't remember what I picked for Ruby Rogues. So just imagine that I picked something awesome. Uh, Or not Ruby Rogues, JavaScript Jabber earlier this week. So, But I'm going to pick Seven Wonders this week. Seven Wonders is a little bit more involved board game, uh, you know, on the scale of really simple to really involved. It's, yeah, but it's fun. It's one of those games, like most board games I play, I have a pretty good idea as to where I am as far as winning or losing middle of the pack, winning, losing. Seven Wonders, every time I play it, I have no freaking idea if I'm winning until the end of the game. And then, uh, you know, we tally the scores, then it's, oh, yeah, yeah, I won or I lost or sometimes I win big and sometimes I lose big. And I had no idea until the end of the game. So I just do the best I can. But the way it works is you are building a city, basically. And so you get resources, you spend them to play uh, cards that represent buildings. The buildings give you more abilities that help you build your city. If you you get points for having an army larger than the people to either side of you on each round, you get money for different things. Anyway, so at the end of the game, and, and if your buildings like match colors and stuff like that, you get points. So at the end of the game, you just tally up all your points and see who won. And you have a wonder in front of you that you can build that also gives you special uh, abilities. And it's a fun game. It's a fun game that I just do my best at and hope I win at the end. But yeah, I'm going to pick that. And then I'm also going to do a quick pick on... And this is something that just kind of made me think. So if you have kids, or maybe if you don't, and you just really like Disney movies, uh, they just released Encanto uh, a few weeks ago. And the thing that really struck me, you know, I, I walked out of there and I was like, oh, it's seeing the movie, right? It wasn't my favorite and it wasn't, you know, I did not like it. You know, I enjoyed it, but I, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. M- music's kind of catchy, but I was thinking about it like a couple days later and it, it occurred to me that there's kind of this lesson in it that I think is important for folks. So without spoiling it, right? I mean, Spoilers. my rule is Spoilers. I try not to spoil a Try not to spoil a movie if it's not been out for a year. So all the people in the family have like special magical things they can do, right? And what winds up happening through the course of the movie is that the main character, she starts to starts to talk to people and it becomes 
pretty apparent that there are things that they're not talking about. And there are things that they're feeling and expectations that people have of each other that aren't realistic or that don't line up with who those people really are, right? I mean, one of the songs is literally, we don't talk about Bruno. We don't talk about the uncle, right? And he was kind of the scapegoat for a while. But you kind of you kind of get this feel. And I, as I think about it and I'm realizing, you know, there's a lot of this that goes around now, right? Where we, we look at somebody and they say, you say, well, you voted a certain way, so you must be this. Or you, you know, you belong to this church, so you must be this. Or you're from this country, so you must be this. Or you look a certain way, so you must be this. And the reality is, is that we're all people and we're all different. And so just recognizing that, hey, I may disagree with you on religion, on politics, on any number of other things, right? I may not look like you. I might not talk like you. I might not whatever. But the reality is, is that if I sit down and I start talking to you about things, we we may be able to come to understand each other anyway, right? And recognize, hey, look, you don't feel the same pressure I do about certain things, but you felt that kind of pressure about some things, right? And so we can identify with each other and we can understand. And as we come to understand each other, then we can start to heal the the problems that we have. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to spoil how the movie goes or how it ends, but that's the lesson that I took from the video. So if you've seen it, you're kind of going, oh, yeah, I see what it's talking about. But um, anyway, I just really want to call that out, right? If you if somebody says something on Twitter that you just find utterly offensive, there, there may be a story there, right? Or they may just not understand because they're worried about some other thing or whatever. But they're still human. And they're still trying to do their best. So anyway, I'm going to call that out. And then this week I am. So I've already put up a list of workshops that we're doing. Now, I'm not sure on the schedule on this. So the workshops that I have on the calendar may already be done by the time this goes live. But I'm planning to do a workshop every week about something related to developer careers or tools or things like that. Excuse me. They will be free to attend live. And then you'll have to have a top end devs membership to watch the replays. And all the replays will be available. I'm also working on adding all of the past. I've put on about 20 remote conferences over the last seven years. I'm going to put all those videos behind the paywall. And I'm planning on doing more of those this year. And so anyway, if you go to topendevs.com slash events or for the workshops slash workshops uh, slash conferences will be the conferences, right? You kind of get the idea. But it'll list all of them there. I'm also planning on doing meetups. And the system I'm going to use for that is the other pick that I have. It's called AirMeet. And the thing that I like about it is that it's not just another sort of webinar software. It does do that, which is kind of why I'm using it. But for the conferences and um, meetups and things like that, they also have the ability to have like open tables where people can sit in video conference. So it's kind of like breakout rooms for Zoom, except there's a more visual element to it. And so effectively, the plan is, is at least for the meetups, I'm not sure if I'm going to do it for, for the workshops, but for the meetups, when you show up, and I'm, I'm planning on doing one at least next month for Ruby, JavaScript, Angular, and DevOps, and probably React. But yeah, so we'll, we'll have presentations for half hour, 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And then we'll have a half, half hour or so where we'll either assign topics to some of the tables and leave some of them open or just leave all of them open, and then people can just network afterward. Because what I'm finding is, is that a lot of people still aren't able to go to meetups, either because of the pandemic, or just because they still don't live in an area where they have a meetup. And I want them to be able to go, but I don't want it to just be, uh, 
hey, this expert's going to yak at you for five minutes, and then this expert's going to yak at you for five minutes, and then we're going to get off the call, right? I want people to be able to mingle and get to know each other. And so that's why I picked AirMeet is because it has that option. It also has options for sponsors at the conferences to do booths and stuff, which is nice. But ultimately, for me, the real power behind meetups and conferences is your ability to go and network with folks. So anyway, come check it out. If you sign up, you can also get into the Slack room and stuff like that. I'm actually talking to people in the Slack room right now about what workshops they want, right? What are you struggling with? What are you trying to get to? So anyway, check that out. And then finally, I'm also launching the Top End Devs show. So you'll be able to subscribe to that. But yeah, AirMeet is super cool. So I'm going to pick them. All right, Jeremy, what are your picks? I have three picks. My first is I just finished reading The Trusted Advisor. It's the latest edition of that. If you are doing consulting or any kind of client services, I uh, highly recommend this book. It covers a lot of the relational aspects of client relationships. I've, I've found that just having technical expertise is not enough to serve clients well. There are so many just normal relationship aspects that you have to do well at, that you have to get better at. And this book goes into great detail about how to build trust with your clients with people you're serving. I listened to the audiobook while I was running and I found that I the one thing that didn't work well for me was that I you know I just start going off thinking about like all kinds of ways that what they were talking about like how I could improve like my client relationships and uh so I'm going to have to go back and and read the uh read the printed book so I can you know stop and and really take it in but there's I got so much out of it uh, going through this book uh, recently. My second pick is Brian Lovin. He's a designer with GitHub. He has a new service that he launched called Crit, and it is like a design health report. I think it's like maybe five mm-hmm. grand, and he goes through and does this design critique, design health report for uh, product. And I, he's got examples of a couple different products he's done. I went through his uh, his health report on Button Down. I don't know if you've heard of Button Down, but it's a like a mark Markdown based email uh, subscription e- email newsletter service. And his uh, his critique on that was really fascinating. If you like refactoring uh, videos, like on uh, code refactoring, this is kind of like design refactoring. And uh, I I really love those kind of refactoring uh, uh, videos and talks and things like that. And lastly, my third pick is a blog post, which I'll share. It's how I built a date picker. And this is by, I think I'm saying his name right, it's Jolt Benke. And uh, this is a date picker this this dev built with Stimulus. And it's one of the best best blog posts I've read recently, just hands down, just across the board. But also one of the best things I've read uh, related to hot wire stimulus, things like that. So really love that post. Awesome. Uh, one more question. If people want to connect with you on the internet, where do they find you? Yeah, the best, best place to uh, find me is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Jeremy Smith Co. And uh, yeah. All right. Good deal. Thanks for having me. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.